Nicholas Bonos of CapitalLink, thank you to everybody for uh, joining the uh, crude uh, oil tanker panel. Uh, energy is uh, a core topic always, and especially now with uh, all the geopolitical uh, tensions uh, around the world. Uh, we have a great uh, group of panelists, and uh, I would uh, turn it over to Chris, uh, our partner in this conference. And by the way, Chris is making uh, you know, his... Uh, moderating three panels. He's really uh, soldering a big burden. So thank you, Chris, for being a great partner. And thank you, Lois. Thank you, Hugh, Brian, Lars, and Harris. And the, the floor is yours, uh, Chris. Thanks, Nicholas. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's, it always is a little bit of a burden when I have to do these uh, these panels. I'm actually just joking. This is a this is a fun one for us to do. We really do enjoy spending time with all the folks here. And the tanker panel, I think, is uh, particularly topical these days, given all the things going on in the world. So um, I think that's kind of where we would like to start. So this is a fantastic group to ask these types of questions because they're on the, um, you know, the, the, the cutting edge of what's actually happening in the world. And, and there's a lot happening in the world. So, you know, let's let's dig right in. You know, Lois, you're right next to me on my screen. So I'm going to start with you just because that's the easiest way for me to go. Let's let's talk about sort of the, the current environment, particularly, you know, Russia. Uh, that, that's what everyone sort of calls in and asks us about is, you know, what are the specific dynamic changes you're seeing in the trade today because of what's happening between Russia and Ukraine and the sanctions and maybe even some of the self-sanctioning that's going on with their crude? So is what sort of maybe the first question directly would be, what's this sort of ton mile or operational sort of dislocation that's happening in the market today? You know, uh, that's, a, that's a big question. So, you know, if we, you know, this morning, the guys were looking at uh you know, the Bloomberg terminals and just seeing, you know, Ural's is still discounted by about $30 a barrel. That's just tremendous. So when you see that kind of a situation, there's going to be buyers, right? So, you know, a lot of the trading uh, coming out of, in particular, the Black Sea has gone a little bit quiet. In other words, a little bit underground, you know, so I think it's become uh a little bit unpopular to be to be loading uh, some of these Russian crews, uh, particularly out of the Black Sea, and so some of that the, the traders come in and fill the gap when the um, oil companies kind of back away a little bit and, and certainly are not taking any trading barrels, right? So I think that the Russian crude is still flowing uh, from what we can ascertain and, and what we see from um, position lists and, and fixtures and. And, you know, that discount is just tremendous. So there's a big incentive for that crude to be going east. So we, we are seeing that. And, um, you know, this on Friday, uh, CPC pipeline going down, and it does seem to be Kagasan barrels, right? So it, it's where that CPC uh, coming out of there in Nova Rossisk is about 1.34 million barrels a day. And a big piece of that, the Kazakhstan barrels, like a million barrels a day, that seems to be offline, but we're going to have to see here from some damage from a storm, whether or not that's going to be sustained or temporary. So, you know, this situation is highly, highly fluid, uh, is what I, what I would say. And on the ground, what we see is the product carriers are faring better than crude at the moment. And the, the Vs are sort of the most left out in the cold with Afros and Suez Maxis um, have, having a little bit more of a, of a dynamic, even though rates are, are, are really quite low. Got it. Yeah, no, that, that certainly makes sense. Um, 
Brian, maybe a question I can throw your way. What do you estimate Russia to be as part of the sort of overall ton miles of the industry? And I, I guess, you know, as you think about how the trade evolves, you know, where are the barrels going? I, I guess I guess that's a, that's sort of the, the question we all want to know. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. And Lois sort of touched upon it, like these moving parts. Uh, it's very dynamic. But I think we have to remember, take a step back, that shipping works in sort of weeks and months. It doesn't work in hours and days like capital mm-hmm. markets do. Um, but on average, the Russian barrels seaborne are moving, I think, 2,000 nautical miles on average. Um, and on global on a global basis, that would be around about 5,000 uh, mile, nautical miles on a global basis. So you can see a sense of, if you have this general swap out of, if Europe doesn't take the Russian barrel seaborne, which is roughly, say, 1.6 to 2 million barrels, that they're going to have to source it from, say, half the Atlantic, half the Middle East. But we're not really seeing that trade. And uh, you and I spoke, I think, a month ago when this all sort of started. And the consensus was then that the Aframax would have a really outsized impact. And some of the latest intelligence we've seen would suggest that it's going to be more balanced between Aframax and Suez Max, because as uh, Lewis alluded to, that you're going to see a lot of this maybe long haul trade with this very discounted and very attractive oil that the Indians have been very public in wanting to take. Um, it's probably better sourced on, on a Suez Max. So I'm not trying to duck the question, but I think all of us were all a little bit feeling in the dark a little bit. And of course, technically, um, some of the, the sanctions haven't actually bitten yet. They don't, they don't bite until April. And a lot of the stuff that's moving at the moment has already been, was contracted or contracted before the uh, hostility started. So I think we do have to be in a bit of a wait and see, but absolutely would fully concur with Lois's view that, you know, the, the VLCCs are very much out in the cold. Uh, you can't land a VLCC in, in, in the Russian ports. Um, it will be a Suez Max and Aframax market. We believe we're going to have a situation and our consensus we would be that you're going to see a swap out of European barrels sourced from Seabourne um, uh, imports. Uh, you'll replace Russian barrels with um, overseas barrels from the Atlantic or, or the, or the um, Middle East. But you will get a benefit of longer term miles of that Russian oil being tolerated and being discounted and, and consumed in the Far East. So we don't actually buy into this view that we heard a lot from a, a recent trip in, uh, in Oslo that we're going to see a, a lot of these Russian barrels completely taken out of the marketplace. We would sort of confer, concur with the view that half a million to a million barrels may be taken offline. But again, ask us in a week and there'll be a different answer. <laughs> Fair enough. I know. I know it's a very fluid situation, and so it's great to get everyone's perspective. Lars, maybe we could bring you into this conversation a little bit. And what are you seeing in terms of action in the West? So Europe, but then maybe more importantly, uh, North America, in terms of you know sourcing barrels and the trade that's developing there. Any of the sort of unique spillover effects of what's going on with Europe and Russia in particular that's impacting these markets. Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, a lot's been said already, and, and, uh, and both uh, Lewis and, and Brian are, are perfectly correct. Uh, <clears throat> but I think just to, to, to look at this a bit holistically, so Russia is obviously very close to Europe, and Europe is, although smaller than the US, uh, it's a relatively big refining hub. Uh, that oil is now seemingly sailing past uh, Europe, either to go to India or to Asia, and then it's being replaced. So. So Brian mentioned, you know, 2,000 nautical miles average uh, kind of uh, trade, but but if you think about it in a matter of days, you know, these these voyages kind of from the Baltics down to to Europe was three four days laden and a similar kind of backhaul, so so 14 days altogether. 
these trades are now stretching to be 20 days, 25 days, and so forth. Also, uh, North Sea has normally exported a lot of barrels to Asia. That is now being kind of brought locally. So, so it's, it's basically going into to, to Europe. You also see US and West African barrels point towards Europe. So, so it's you, you're creating this very inefficient uh, kind of trading environment. And, and this uh, uh, sometimes have a positive effect on overall tonnage. And I, I, I would like to second what Brian said that right now it's not benefiting the Vs, it's, it's kind of hurting the Vs. But again, you know, kind of how this plays out is going to be difficult to assess because all of a sudden Middle East is is exporting barrels to Europe and then suddenly China needs to bring barrels from further afar. So, so kind of where this uh, ton-mile balance gets substituted when you lose, or sorry, you increase a certain part of the trade, it's, it's almost impossible to say. Okay. Yeah. No. no fair enough. It's uh, these these are these are challenging dynamics to kind of play out. I guess Hugh, let's get you involved a little bit. So so let's take what we've heard from from everybody so far and think a little bit about what you expect, how you expect the rate environment to sort of play out. You know, and, and we can you can sort of pick your, your your poison in terms of what duration you're looking for. Obviously, shorter is probably a touch more predictable than than a little bit further out, but none is probably all that predictable. But what's your general inclination sure. for rates as we look out? You know, for the next six months or so. Sure. Well, I, the the first thing I'd say uh, is that you know this um, the situation is it it's unprecedented in a number of of ways. But one, I remember when everything first hit and the first wave of sanctions you know came, and you know we spend as everyone here does you know a lot of time on this you know making sure that you're compliance, figuring out what you can and can't do, how entities are affected by sanctions, the type of sanctions, whether. And I remember spending that weekend on all of this and with our sanctions lawyers and figuring essentially, and having some very heated discussions with um, you know, my partner, Bob Burke, uh, about you know, placing some of our own feelings aside and you know, doing right things for shareholders. And then it was a bit stunning talking to our institutional shareholders who's, you know, who were supremely uninterested in the legal intricacies of whether you could do this or whether you could do that and very much on a, you know, we don't want to hear about, you know, we don't want to hear about the word Russia. I mean, yeah. and we, yeah. and, and so, you know, there's, it's something that I haven't quite seen before. Like in, in general, we, you know, whether we can trade to Venezuela or not is something that's changed over time with different types of primary and secondary sanctions. And we've always followed, you know, followed the, you know, followed the law very, very carefully. Um, but uh, this this is something that uh, that you know has been very different for for us, and so I think in some ways the way that that same process is running through other decisions being made right now by oil companies and things, which is essentially the level of you know finan suboptimal financial and you know product sourcing they're willing to endure to satisfy you know their the, their customers as well as their you know shareholders and stakeholders. Um, is something that drives this inefficiency and, and maybe makes it even a bit more um, so than it otherwise would be. So I think we're starting to see that already in, um, especially on the product side, as, as people had, um, had, I think had mentioned, uh, there's a real shortage of diesel in, in Europe, refining margins are through the roof, the arbitrage is open there. And so, and product is being sourced you know, from, from Asia, um, you know, 
the the movement of diesel from US to Europe had really evaporated over the last couple of years. That's you know that's coming back, um, and so we're you know we're we're seeing that, and and the MR market has really moved, you know, nicely. So it's sort of averaging, I'd say, like right now, like low twenty thousands um, uh, overall, at least what we're seeing short run with the pools and on a trailing basis, probably very high teens. Um, and we're also seeing in the Afras and the uh, and and the Suez things getting a bit better, and especially there where Southcom Flood have. Six seven percent of the global Afromax fleet pulling that, you know, capacity out or rendering it suboptimal and 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 doing you know not the natural trades, I think is is supportive there and and those markets tend to move in in tandem. So as as people said a few times, the V's haven't really seen much there. I think they will. And I just close by sort of saying, overall, our business is about supply and demand for oil and additions and subtractions to inventory. And in 2020, the, the um, world stopped consuming oil and was still producing it. And we had a wonderful couple of months. And then we've like suffered from these super high inventory levels. And today we have the opposite. We have inventories that have drawn well below really where it's safe to have them. And now we've got a shock on the supply side and exactly how much it is that's been coming out from, uh, uh, from, from Russia is, is debatable. Um, but it's some amount, and, and we think that with a backdrop of a really strong fleet demographic story um, just means that we're in a very supportive environment overall for the next 6, 12, 24 months that we haven't seen for a while. That's really helpful and, and great color. Um, Harry, let, let's sort of go to you, and I'm, I'm curious to maybe pick up on the point that you made about investor sentiment around trade and, and how you manage your fleet. And, and if you've heard that expressed as well, and then, you know, maybe if you could talk a little bit about inventory levels and your expectations, um, you know, around the next six months of, of the year. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Christian. Um, well, as uh, everyone stated, and as uh, we can uh, see, every, everything is in the state of flux. Uh, we don't know where, uh, when the the uh, war will end. We don't know it's long, uh, if, if it has any long-lasting uh, impact uh, on the world and world trade, and uh, and uh, potentially how that could affect you know major uh, oil routes. Uh, for example, uh, we are seeing today uh, and 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 going on uh, some earlier points that were made. Uh, some of the Russian tankers, for example, that you know they are uh, naturally in a quasi-pariah state, if you like, status that they are trading uh, uh, to the Far East, China, India. So they are creating a void that this could potentially be filled by other, uh, you know, other uh, vessels from you know, non-Russian entities. So that could potentially have a, long, uh, a benefit uh, for, you know, for the rest of us, if you like. Investors are seeing that. I think they are taking a cautious look, a cautious approach, because on the one hand, uh, for example, for the smaller trades, uh, we see rates that have uh, really gone through the roof. However, uh, on the spot market for the big vessels, we're seeing uh, 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 rates uh, not being able to bounce at levels that uh, we feel uh, make sense. We have a lot of interest for long-term contracts. Uh, we are communicating this to our investors. Uh, we are, uh, as you know, historically, we have been uh, a time charter oriented company. I mean, today approximately close to call it, you know, 65 to 70% of the fleet is on long-term contracts. So in a way, we're a bit fortunate that we have avoided 
uh, all these uh, wild gyrations that the market is uh, is, is providing vis-a-vis uh, -vis rates, and uh, and uh, hopefully uh, that should translate to uh, to investors getting a clearer picture, at least uh, as 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 far as ten is concerned, on uh, how we are navigating this current crisis. Uh, we do not expect that it will affect the company, uh, not at all. Uh, obviously, you know everyone is we are uh, in it together. Uh, all of the companies in the panel, so we need uh, to uh, to see an end to it. Uh, if not, uh, then the best thing that could happen, and I think the the, the best on on the uh, call it ethical humanitarian perspective, is for the EU to ban completely uh, any exports of Russian crude. Uh, that will be uh, on the economic side uh, beneficial uh, for uh, you know for for uh, tanker operators, and uh, obviously it will have an impact on uh, increase in uh, ton mile demand, uh, particularly from uh, places like uh, uh, like the U.S. Uh, so we are hoping that uh, all of this will uh, resonate with investors. I hope that uh, energy is coming back into the fray because, as you know, uh, up until recently energy was a bad word. However, now people realize that. Energy is in the core of uh, of our lives and uh, and uh, the world economy, and uh, uh, I think it will continue to be that uh, over the next uh, you know uh, if not uh, uh, I wouldn't say generations but uh, certainly the next uh, decade. So energy is here to stay, and we need to find a solution. And uh, and uh, in the interim, we're doing our best uh, to offer comfort on both to our uh, to our charters and obviously to investors that uh, that follow the company and have invested in uh, in in ten, uh, it's uh, it's you know uh, it, it's it's too early to 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 make predictions on uh, on uh, inventories. It all depends, uh, uh, you know, how again, uh, for example, how you know how protracted this uh, war will be. Uh, for example, one potential, uh, and, and, and to see the dynamics, uh, for example, the Russians, uh, eventually they might run out of, of, uh, of uh, storing oil because they have limited storage capacity. So that could potentially lead to a decrease in their production. We could see the opposite in, uh, in uh, uh, oil exporting countries that they will start uh, um, exporting uh, some of that uh, oil in order to fill the void that uh, the Russian sanctions uh, uh, would create. Uh, so all in all, we are all on the sidelines, uh, hoping for the best, but also preparing uh, the company uh, to to meet the challenges of the future. But as a company, uh, we, we, you know, we are following uh, whatever our charters are uh, requesting uh, and uh, and. Uh, we just hope that uh, eventually this will uh, uh, will will get translated to uh, to better valuations vis-a-vis uh, -vis, you know the, the the company stock by virtue of being a public company. Yeah. Okay. No, that that that's really helpful. Um, Lois, I wanted to get your perspective on on some of the um, you know dynamics we're hearing you know out of Asia, but China particularly. So you know zero COVID tolerance policies are quite disruptive to. You know, broader trade, and I know that's more of a container market dynamic, but I wanted to get maybe more of a perspective of what you think that means about demand going forward. I think there's a, a big concern about you know, overall economic health of Europe and the United States and the sustainability of that in a very elevated um, you know, a commodity price environment. And you throw in you know, China kind of going, turning on and off and on and off, back and forth. You know, how do you think that influences um, you know, demand as you as you think out over the next several you know next several quarters. Well, 
you know, in 2022, you know, we started the year and, and China hosted the Olympics. We knew they wanted blue skies. So, you know, that was lower consumption. Now, um, you know, we're, we're seeing that they're locking down a lot of Shanghai. So, you know, this affects the tanker market as well. And, and I think it just, it, it affects it in the very immediate term, right? Because then, uh, you know, you just have fewer people traveling, right? That, that uh, plays into uh, our overall ton mile demand picture and obviously China being a massive importer and uh, really a key anchor to uh, overall big shift in these tanker demand. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm you know, we, we all watch what happens in China, uh, you know, very carefully. And see that I, I don't see that uh, particularly having a longer term effect. I, you know, I think that, um, and, you know, and we just have to see here, you know, if it would what the Omicron variant does uh, and how that, how they're, whether or not they're successful with this lockdown and kind of how that plays out, right? So, um, to, you know, to that extent, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing that impact and I, you know, I can't wait for it to be over and we're heading into our third year here of COVID, right? There's 11 billion shots. I almost quit looking every day. So 11 billion shots have been given in the world, you know, and, um, you know, I think everybody is ready for it to be done. And you're seeing road traffic back up in, in most of the world. You're seeing air traffic back up. And, um, you know, last week, you know, in uh, New York City, we hosted three different uh, European uh, counterparts that, that had traveled, right? So, you know, you're starting to see overall life getting back to, to happening and people traveling and, and getting their, um, getting on with their business, right? And I think that that's a result that the Omicron is not going to win that we don't get another one worse, but much more mild and the fatality rates were much lower and the patient outcomes were, were significantly better, right? So, you know, Hugh uh, touched on it a lot, you know, um, behind the scenes, you know, demand has been coming back, back, back and inventories have come down, you know, so you're, you're in a situation where everybody thought we would already be in a stockpile, right? Inventories going up in uh, the first quarter already of 2022, and then that has kind of um, been flipped on its ear a little bit. And remember that you know, China is loosening their financial policy at the same time that we're tightening our financial policy right here. So, you know, not every country in the world is on the same, you know, economic place, right? So, um, you know, yeah, I see uh, two-year treasury rates spiking up and, and you know, that uh, that's not, you know, over the last week or so. And, you know, you, you when you get to an inverted curve, then you get concerned about growth, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's a, it is a, it's, it's a hard sort of world to decipher as it stands right now. Um, and, and I guess, it feels like things are evolving. Um, and I think Harry made a, a, an interesting point about sort of this transition. So there's been a lot of discussion about energy transition towards, you know, cleaner fuels. And maybe the perception was we didn't really understand how vulnerable we were during transition periods and maybe how long these transition periods could be. So, you know, Lars, maybe a question for you, curious to get a sense of, of whether you think we might see some more wholesale, wholesale investing in capacity and, and the industry in general, where we've seen, frankly, a little bit of a lack of investment for understandable reasons, whether we understand what the propulsion systems will look like several years from now, what the requirements around emissions will look like, and what ultimately 
you know, consumers, when they think about scope three, you know, two and three carbon emissions, you know, will be willing to tolerate. So I guess maybe a big picture question for you, Lars, what do you think investment looks like in this space over the course of the next couple of years? Well, I think kind of the, the general volatility we've seen um, over the last year and a half, maybe two years even, uh, particularly on you know the the valuable propulsion technology that people have been looking at has been dual fuel with you know uh, kind of uh, LNG and and uh, and uh, diesel, and uh, you know when you make an investment case to add say 10, 12, 30 million dollars uh, to your building costs to have this ability to switch. Uh, when you did that, uh, you were looking back in the mirror and, uh, you know, you knew that LNG was always going to be cheap. Well, uh, it isn't, and it won't. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I'm hearing day after or day in, day out of uh, kind of dual fuel vessels that are running on VLSFO or, or diesel, you know, and, and even the LNG tankers themselves uh, would rather do... Uh, fuel. So, so I think it's a shot, a massive hole into kind of this uh, propulsion transition um, for, for tankers, uh, at least for, for um, a significant time, because we're not ready for ammonia yet, and we're not ready for hydrogen. And, and again, you know, ship owners are not there to take these massive risks on their balance sheets to make these kind of uh, road choices. Uh, which might actually end up uh, being the wrong uh, kind of lane to follow. And uh, another part of your question was, you know, when you talk about scope two, scope three uh, emissions and so forth, I, I, I think I, I need to kind of put some cold water in, in the veins of, of the listeners here, because we have yet to see any charter in the world willing to pay a premium for a low emitting vessel. You know, you get absolutely zero uh, kind of, uh, you know, for having an eco scrubber vessel, it only allows you to run your ship a little bit cheaper, but the charter is not willing to pay more. If he's sitting, if, he, if he's looking at a eco scrubber VLCC built in 2020 and a 2014 built uh, non-eco without the scrubber, he will choose the cheapest one. You know who offers the lowest freight, um, and and it's uh, you know uh, I like to say sometimes that the boardroom ambitions haven't drizzled down to the decision makers that we're facing every day in the market, and uh, but that will change. It has to change, obviously. Uh, but but so far there is absolutely no interest in 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 um, in the kind of the low emissions uh, or, or the benefits of that. Uh, the only reason to to where you can get by that is when, you know, a lot, you know, you, you actually get paid for the low emission. So 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 that will be, you know, when a oil major or a refiner or whatever, you know, imposes uh, either an internal tax, a, a budget or whatever to their kind of the guys that are actually chartering our ships, uh, then that might change. So so I'm 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 actually quite bearish. Um, you know, the energy transition in shipping, basically due to the adverse price activities we've had on, on the, the various fuels. And also that, you know, we might need to, to step further kind of down the technology road, and that's going to take longer. Um, you know, we, we kind of ammonia on a, on a deep ocean going vessel, uh, you know, it's, it's not viable uh, just right now. 
so 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 um so i think we'll have to do with the kits we have um and actually we you know circling back to some of the other uh kind of speakers there we actually have a little bit of a bigger problem and and that's the fact that the world is short oil uh and, and this was actually uh, obvious even before uh the uh, russian russia invaded ukraine you know the world consumed 100 million barrels per day of uh, of oil in uh, in december and that's with about half the world not flying yet so so it's uh you know this is what we're up against yeah absolutely so i guess brian i saw you you nodding your head i wanted to get your perspective on when you think about investment in the space and, and obviously you guys are a large player how do you think about this I, I think lars brought up some really interesting points about what you would be investing in right i mean it's hard to invest if you have no idea what you really want to invest in and ultimately what the returns of those investments might look like so how do you think that translates to the order book over the next year or two well, I think it's a positive for the order book, and you've seen that we've, I think we're getting into, we're almost at the end of this quarter, I think we've had one VLCC ordered in the last three quarters, including this one. Um, I think there's a, a real barbell with the high prices, at the recycling end, and the high prices at the new build end, you know, you've been quoted 115, 115 million for a new VLCC, you know, plain vanilla, that's, uh, that's going to be very, very, uh, you've got to make a lot of assumptions to get a return on that. Well, what I liked about Lars's points uh, were very, very positive and very well structured. Was that yeah, he's absolutely right. The boardroom ambition uh, isn't being felt, if you pardon the phrase, at the coalface. But what we are seeing a little bit in the middle is our investors, and I mean in terms of the buying of the stock, are a bit more pragmatic, and that that needle has moved for us, um, and we're very encouraged by that. That there's a, a pragmatism because they've missed out a lot of these investors on big returns from oil uh, stocks and, and old old energy as you as it were um but i think they're, they're also more pragmatic to know that they need we need to have an investment uh, and all the guys on, on this particular call uh, are focused on having that latest technology so i think there's a there's a there's a there's a changing if you like um a, a more of a pragmatic view but it hasn't as as last says uh, sort of got down to um the people on the ground but in terms of where we're investing we we've, we've, we're trying to future proof um, the, the eight or six vessels we've still got to take delivery on. And that means putting the pipe work and, and strengthening the, uh, the the decks and everything else to make sure that they can take that new technology when it's available. Lars is absolutely right that the ammonia is still some way away, but we're working hard with our joint development program. Um, but we're, we're also, I think we've all been consistent uh, amongst the, the panelists here that there, is gone, there isn't going to be a one-size-fits-all. It is going to be a little bit of a mix and match. Um, and it isn't just about picking the right technology. It's about that being viable. You know, if you go down the methanol route, just as an example, you know, you've got to, 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 to power the ships that we've all got under our command. You need a lot of methanol. So, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be, you've got to be the right fuel as well. So I think there's a, there's a lot of um, uh, structural issues, and Lars is absolutely right to highlight those. But we're encouraged that one part of that mix uh, in terms of the investors from the, from the capital markets, in our experience over the last three to six months, have become a lot more pragmatic and are a lot more open. And I think they want to invest before it was black and white. I think a year ago we had this conversation. I'm either in oil or I'm not. Now there's an element of saying, look, I'm, I'm going to be in oil, but or <clears> want to, in the right companies, the companies that are doing the investment, the companies that are going to, are going to tick those boxes for me in terms of that, that rounded investment uh, process and looking to invest in the future. That's, that is definitely a, a positive, uh, if you like, side effect of what we've seen. Um, and that's what hopefully will continue to permeate down uh, as Lars alluded to, from from the bar, from the boardroom all the way down to those people, but th things will have to change. We're going to have to we're going to have to get used to paying for these, as he, as he right, rightly pointed out. 
and we need some proper carbon pricing uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a bare minimum on that. Yeah, Hugh, would love to get your perspective on this as well. I think the order book's a big question mark we get from investors over time. And, and obviously this, this, this sort of interest, the renewed interest in the energy complex has sort of brought that question up is sort of, what do we do? What does this industry do to sort of move forward from where we are? Otherwise we're left with a fleet, which is sort of aging out naturally over time. So what, what's your perspective? And, you know, and I think that's, I mean, that's, that's positive. And, and we, we, um, I think there are a couple of things that are different about our our, our model, um, you know, being private and, and being private with a sort of a series of specific individual investments. And it, I think it changes your view a little bit. If you're a large company with a broad range of assets, you know, you might invest to sort of to future proof some vessels, even when on a standalone basis, look just at that vessel, it may not be, you know, an obvious best use of of capital. When, when we're looking at it on the private side, you know, it's very hard to justify a new building to begin with and to take sort of a 25-year view on when we see peak demand and what the overall dynamics are going to look like, much less to add 10 to $13 million to a new building price, um, you know, un unless it's underwritten by a charter such as, you know, Lois had when Shell had their LNG project. So um, it, there are some exceptions, but when we you know, look at a particular opportunity, and we've generally looked a little bit older, where um, you know the capital cost is lower, and but also where we're confident that when we take these assets, we can um, you know make the investments and you know change the prof essentially change the trajectory of the the carbon emissions, um, where we can take a a ship that would have been by 2026 a D rated, uh, you know, in in the new. Um, CII rules and make it a B. Uh, and we have found some investors who are responsive to that. And increasingly, we found investors who I think are speaking more of the language of transition has been talked here. Um, it's There's an understanding, there's an implicit assumption, I think, in the anti-fossil fuels entirely that you know energy was sort of abundant, cheap, and secure. And that's all been tested right now. And it's you know, I don't want to say it's, it was arrogance, probably more a bit of complacency, just that, that, you know, it's there, I don't have to worry about it, and I don't have to invest in it. Um, there was an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal today about, you know, what is, you know, if, if the moral imperative, you know, of today is getting weapons to the Ukrainians, is investing in weapons, you know, still a, an ESG taboo? I mean, and these, I think, are are questions that are that are opening up somewhat. Um, I, I think at the same time, a lot of us you have to re, re, you know resist feeling that that it's some you know a sort of a longer term change. There there still is there's an energy transition happening away from fossil fuels, and it's going to be something that that impacts our business you know over the next several decades. Um, and what we do now is going to, you know, have to change what we carry, how we how we change things, which is why we tend to continue to focus on sort of, you know, five year chunks. What can we yep. do with a fleet of ships to buy them at a low price, finance them properly, earn as much money as we can, sell them, return that money to uh, to investors, and you know, by our ownership, improve the the carbon footprint and the emissions of that fleet while we own it. Got it. That that's very helpful. Harry, wanted to get your perspective on all of this and 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 how sort of ten sees that where where see ten sees opportunities in the market and and how you guys are thinking about deploying capital from your shareholders. 
so we have already grasped that opportunity, if you like, uh, just uh, by the virtue of our recent order in the four uh, Aframax tankers dual fuel uh, to a very well-known uh, oil major. Uh, so that's something that, uh, that uh, we have uh, already uh, proceeded with. Uh, obviously, it's still kind of the first phase, if you like, of uh, such a transition. Uh, we'll, we would need to monitor uh, the situation as it uh, kind of evolves, as it develops. Vis-à-vis, uh, -vis, you know, the new propulsion systems, uh, potential, you know, alternative fuels, and uh, and uh, what have you. Uh, so, in order to, if you like, uh, quote unquote, experiment for the lack of a better word, uh, go into this uh, new field, uh, we wouldn't have done it uh, without uh, an underlying contract. Uh, even though the order book today is at historical lows, uh, which in a normal world this would have uh, translated to skyrocketing, uh, <laughs> to skyrocketing levels, uh, we are. Uh, uh, venturing into this uh, new field uh, by uh, having the security of, uh, of uh, 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 call it potentially, you know, a, a triple A rated uh, a charter. So that gives us a comfort to, uh, to explore, you know, that field and potentially, you know, order more vessels. Uh, as you can appreciate, to go into these new areas, these new technologies, uh, just by default, uh, you need to order vessels. Uh, there are no uh, vessels in the water that, uh, you know, uh, with the latest technology that are for sale. So you need to go out and, uh, and put pen on paper and, uh, and uh, uh, take the deep dive. Uh, all, you know, all in all, you know, we are uh, on the forefront, we like to think of uh, such advancements. Uh, we like to do it in a modest way. Uh, and a case in point was our LNG investments that uh, we never, and thank God, we never uh, went uh, with you know massive orders uh, when we felt that uh, uh, everything was in, in terms of technology it, it was in a state of flux, and uh, uh, we uh, stood uh, we were right on that uh, as uh, as as things uh, evolved. Uh, similarly with uh, scrubbers, I mean we have avoided and have been public uh, in uh, in uh, opposing uh, the use of uh, of uh, scrubbers. The only time that uh, we had vessels uh, with uh, scrubber technology was only when our charters, again, with new buildings, uh, paid for it. Uh, but time will tell, you know, the jury's still out, uh, both on scrubbers and, uh, and uh, the dual fuel. Uh, we still need to see how the vessels will, uh, will perform uh, over, or, or, or over the next, uh, you know, uh, I would say, you know, 10 years, because you know, the vessels, you cannot judge a vessel by a single trade or just by a quarter. You need to to see the whole operation of the vessel through, you know, th through the various cycles, through its trading, if it does uh, spot trading, if it does uh, uh, time charter trading. So it's more complicated uh, uh, than that. Uh, all my prior, uh, all the prior, you know, co-panelists uh, had some excellent points, uh, but, uh, you know, we need to look forward. Uh, we always need to, uh, uh, to analyze and assess uh, uh, new developments, but we should not, uh, uh, just jump on an opportunity without really analyzing its long-term impacts. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, in our case, we just felt very comfortable in, uh, in, uh, in venturing into the dual fuel technology just by the status of the underlying uh, charter. Uh, we are looking at similar transactions, uh, similar, you know, attractive transactions that offer us, you know, a very good return uh, for taking this uh, 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 leap, if you like. And, uh, and uh, we will see how that, uh, that goes. If it's something that we feel uh, merits uh, further investments. Absolutely, we are here to you know to explore uh, you know uh, deals like that. 
in the in the end of the day, uh, as the company has uh, has uh, grown over the years uh, by virtue of building its own fleet, we are always uh, here to listen and uh, and meet the demands of our clients. And uh, and uh, uh, so it, it's dual fuel today. It might be I don't know uh, tri fuel tomorrow. We are here to build uh, such vessels as long as we get you know. Uh, a good charter uh, against that, but okay. uh, also uh, you know uh, transition uh, is in uh, uh, it, it, it transition or the thought of the transition. I don't think we have uh, uh, finalized uh, uh, what the alternative would uh, would be. Uh, it, it takes time, and once I think we have some kind of direction where uh, you know the. Uh, 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 when the dust, if you like, will settle. And from that point onwards, it takes time. It takes time for that technology that will be uh, the dominant uh, technology going forward to be uh, to be adopted. So we still have a long way to go uh, before uh, we get to that one uh, technology that the vessels will uh, will run under uh, over the next uh, you know decades. Yeah, Lois, what's International Seaways' perspective, and where are you? What are you telling investors that you you see opportunities in, and where are you? How are you deploying capital? So, you know, I, we sort of look at it in tranches. You know, he was saying in five years, you know, we you're looking at okay, here's my existing fleet, and taking each of the age uh, sectors and saying, okay, um, you know, let's make sure that every one of our ships is going to get the best possible score that it can get. And we're, we are investing, you know, we're, we're putting uh, 10 Suez maxes in through dry dock this year. And we are investing, in, you know, the extra uh, $300,000 for the advanced hull coating that, that we're gonna put on those ships to gain that additional efficiency. And, you know, you do run a calculation on how does that return? And that, but that calculation is a lot easier. That decision is a lot easier than it used to be because you, you have that extra efficiency factor that is, you know, your ship is gonna have a better score and incremental improved consumption, right? So we look at the existing fleet, we look at tomorrow, right? We're looking, you know, the uh, dual fuel, the LTCs and, and congratulations to Harry there on, on their project. Those vessels will be able to meet the regulations into the middle of 2040. Right. So, you know, you have to, you know, we're all looking forward. And I, I do think that our partners, meaning our customers, we're going to have to try and figure out how to work with them and in a bespoke manner, you know, uh, start to, to get closer to the customers in the sense that in order to innovate, an owner has to have a partner to take that additional capital risk. So, I, I think that's something that we're starting to see, and I'd like to see a lot more of it uh, in the market. I think there's a lot of room for that. You know, there's a portion of the barrels that are traded barrels, but there's a huge percentage of the cargo that we trade on both crude and products that is base demand. And that could have bespoke solutions with, with some of our customers. So I think that that's going to become a bigger component. So, you know, there's what can you order today, which is largely just the dual fuel. And then, then there's the, the whole R&D element where as owners, you know, we have to take that responsibility to, you know, and, and you know, you're now mentioned it, you know, Brian talked about it, you know, where they're saying, okay, they're uh, strengthening the deck. They're getting, they're getting those new building ships ready to be able to 
trade because the regulations are going to keep train, keep changing. And you can't expect, if you're taking a conventional engine today and you building out the shipyard, you know that you're going to need to alter that vessel in the duration of its flight. So there's like multiple components. There's your existing fleet, how you can trade them, how you can hold them. And then there's, and even in your existing fleet, there's different age tranches. Then there's the new buildings and, and what uh, uh, technology is effective today. And then there's the future forward of all the new fuels. And, you know, as owners, we haven't had to secure our fuel supply. So Maersk with their methanol on, on their new building container ships, they're securing their, securing their bunker supply. So there's whole new elements that are coming into play uh, for owners that, you know, our bunker supply has been a commodity today. All of a sudden, it's not a commodity anymore. Yep. Uh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I guess with the last few minutes that we have, um, you know, I, I'm curious to get people's perspective on the market from an equities perspective. So ultimately, that's what I spend all of my time, you know, focusing on. Under, need to understand the fundamentals, but but how that translates to the stocks. And you know, it, it seems to me that investors have looked at the group you know, on a year to date basis and 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 saw an opportunity around you know energy prices and ultimately disruption. And then maybe have lost a little bit of conviction, and I don't want to go too far with that. But but what do you think we need to sort of see, or investors need to see, to get more sustainably bullish? It seems like with the order book being relatively constrained, um, and potentials for disruption, and sort of the the way that we source energy to change maybe more materially, maybe longer term, there's reasons to be optimistic. But maybe Brian, I'll start with you. I mean, what do you think investors, what are you getting asked about from investors and what do you think they need to see to be more bullish about the prospects on maybe a one year or two year forward basis? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think investors, <laughs> probably like most of the panelists are suffering a little bit of fatigue because uh, we always seem to be in this sort of, sort of perpetual state of, it's gonna be great tomorrow, don't worry. Uh, that's not that's not meant to be a facetious answer. It's that there is some really media, really positive medium term um, sort of constructs here in terms of if you think about there's there's a there's a likelihood that you won't get a BLCC or Suez Max delivered to the world fleet in 2024 mm -hmm. because you're being quoted 2025 today and there's none scheduled for 2024. So there's some good visibility coming. We've got you know an order book at a 25 year low. We've got uh, an average fleet age in the, in, the, in the larger categories at a 25 year high. Those are really good structural elements, but investors, I think, are frustrated that they can't see the pathway to get there because, you know, we get out of COVID and then we get uh, disruption, um, which looks to be on the face of it positive for tankers. And then we're not too sure because there's, there's not an immediate sort of apparent trend. I think investors are looking, I think, for, for three things. I think some sequential improvements, albeit from a very low level, uh, as we continue to see more oil supply coming through. And we continue to hopefully continue to see that, that demand uh, recovery that Lois talked about. I think secondly, they're looking for um, properly weighted and funded companies that are doing the right thing on the on the transition. And, and, and everyone in this call is doing that. And I think that gives them the comfort that they can have that uh, as, a, as an energy transition uh, holding. Uh, it's not something to, to be concerned about uh, because it's got oil associated with it. And I, I just think the last thing they're looking for is I think they're looking for dare I say it, some sort of longevity to the cycle um, and trying to move away from this um, sort of, you've got to purchase your tanker stock um, activity at the very perfect moment uh, in terms of your, your entry and exit. 
I think if we can transition to that to those medium term fundamentals, um, then we don't move uh, move try and move away a little bit from this boom and bust. We're always going to have volatility within our space, but I think that's what the investors I think are really looking for. We're encouraged, to, certainly from a, a European perspective, which maybe not everyone in the schools has got that exposure to. Um, there does seem to be more of a grown up sort of pragmatic message coming through from investors, which I hope will last. Um, but I think it's just getting that sort of uh, those those firmer shorter term footings uh, and catalysts translating to that medium term picture because the medium term picture increasingly looks you know really attractive but it's 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 the journey there that's what i think investors are a little bit afraid of we just need to try and give them that confidence and visibility that we can transition to that medium term uh, structure helpful lars are you bullish medium term um well yes but um you know maybe a bit more muted than, than I used to used to be because I'm, I'm, I'm uh, suffering this illness of perpetual uh, bullishness as well but uh, and, and, uh, and I have to say though that you know this time last year I was incredibly bullish uh, but I was leaning on on only EIA, IEA, OPEC and uh, everybody else uh, assuming inventories were gonna, were gonna stop drawing on inventories which we to this day haven't but I would like to, Brian was 100% correct in, in, in at least my experience as well with investors. There's another thing as well, which you know, I've seen today when I've had one-on-ones, um, there is uh, some degree of the investors looking at tankers now are kind of asset allocating because they've uh, made money in containers, they made money on LNG, they made money on bulkers. And now they need to look at you know the black sheep of the shipping industry that uh, continuously is They're tired of making all that money. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually do see that as well that uh, people that are very familiar with the with the with the industry or or with shipping in general and uh, you know kind of tankers is one of the the sectors that have been uh, left behind uh, and the fundamentals are there. Uh, we just need to sort out kind of oil. Got it. Hugh, last word to you. Are you bullish medium term? Yeah, I, I think, um, and of course, we're not we're not publicly traded, but um, but I think Brian hit the nail on, on the head. You need to see some kind of a, a more like sustained environment that's supportive. And I think what we see, particularly because we are on slightly the older side, I mentioned the public getting complacent with cheap oil and all these things. I think in some ways we're complacent for we've had um, you know, very benign operating cost inflation environment for quite a long time. We've had very low interest rates for a long time, and we've had easy availability in shipyards and things for a long time. That's changing on the older side um, right now. It's shipyard costs for dry docks and repairs are going up quite a bit. Congestion in and out is difficult. China is difficult. And the older fleet have pushed off installing ballast water treatment systems as long as they can. You put all that against the last big tanker boom was the early 2000s, and we're now coming up. We've had low order books plenty of times in the last 10 years, but always against a very young fleet. So you assume, you know, and we've all made this mistake, oh, we'll add 3%, but we'll get some retiring, retiring ships. We haven't seen that. I think now we're going to see it, and we're going to see it consistently over the next five, six, seven years, um, which I think just sets up a much healthier dynamic for the kind of sustained um, you know, positive environment that Brian was uh, was saying. I think investors need to see. Got it. I see Nicholas has emerged, and so I think that means that our time is up. So, gentlemen and Lois, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Nicholas, I'll turn it back to you. Well, all I want to do is say thank you.
tremendous panel. Thank you, Chris, for a great uh, moderating job. And of course, to all the panelists for uh, unique insight. And, and I think it was uh, such a critical topic and, and very timely discussion. Thank you very much to all of you. Thank you. Take care, all.